Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, author Nadine Cajotas joins Nate to talk about her book, Spinning Blues into Gold, The Chess Brothers and the Legendary Chess Records. Nate and Nadine discuss the Chess Brothers and their legendary Chicago blues and soul label that brought the world Muddy Waters, Holland Wolf, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Etta James, and so much more. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Nadine Cahotis, the author of Chess Records, Spinning Blues into Gold. Nadine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And so this is uh, probably the definitive book on Chess Records, which is one of the great American record labels. Founded by two brothers, Leonard and Phil Chess, originally uh, Leonard and Phil Ziz. And I'm I'm blanking on their given uh, Jewish names. They both changed their um, names after they immigrated from Poland with their families. But and I'll get that corrected. But before we go back, you start the book with a quote that I wanted you to get to elaborate on, which was you say the chess record story is often approached with preconceptions based on misconceptions. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you meant by that? What what I meant by that is the preconception, in my view, is that the story of chess records, like so many of the other independents of the time, we're, we're talking just right after World War II and into the early 50s, was, was uh, likely uh, a story of exploitation at some basic level because you had white owners and black talent. Uh, and so there was a uh, power in that. So if that is the view that you take going into looking at this, then it's going to be a way that you choose to interpret the information that comes after it. And that, that is what I meant by that sentence. And, and, and working on this book, uh, I at that isn't really, really what the story is. Uh, Chess was uh, at heart um, a very dynamic company, a very human company. It it is true that uh, Leonard and Phil were in positions of power, but as Marshall, Leonard and Phil's son, um, has pointed out, take a look at the whole of the company over its uh, basically 20-year run, and of all the major artists who came in, who stayed, everybody except one, Chuck Berry, who left, but he came back. Yeah, and I think that's a really telling thing, and and there's a movie, Cadillac Records, that purports to be loosely based on chess that, that falls into that trap of treating them at like Savoy Records or some of the really exploitative record labels, um, Morris Levy's Roulette label, for example. And the Chess Brothers, that loyalty really does speak volumes because so many of the independent labels, whether it was Sun Records or Specialty Records, so many of those labels lost their crown jewel artists at the first opportunity. And Chess really has an incredible track record of holding on to that. And I think another quote you have in there gives us a clue as to why they were able to hold the loyalty of their artists. And, and it was that Chess Records was built on the convergence of outsiders. 
and Leonard and Chess and Muddy Waters were together the foundation of the company. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between Leonard Chess and Muddy Waters and why it was so unique? Yeah. It it was certainly special, and just to back up to the to the point of uh, uh, the notion of outsiders, there's a another that comes to mind, and that's the a convergence, a convergence of an immigrant and a migrant. The Chess brothers were immigrants from Eastern Europe. Muddy Waters was one of the many, not just musicians, but one of the thousands and thousands of migrants who came from the South looking for a better life. And, and together, once they found each other, there was something special, even though in the beginning, Leonard didn't fully understand muddy waters. But in terms of using the word foundation, even though chess would become something much more than a blues label, that was indeed its foundation. That was the first building block. With with respect to the relationship between the, the two, um, I, I got the best feel for that from the opportunity to have so many conversations with Marshall Chess and, and one of Phil's children, Terry Chess, about the musicians being um, so welcomed in, in the family home and, and the kind of ease of being together. The other part of it is thanks to the record um, when Muddy Waters would give interviews the way he spoke about Leonard Chess and, and having fun noting that again in the beginning and we can get to that, um, Leonard didn't understand his spare blues as somebody uh, uh, coming up from Mississippi. You know, I feel like going home. I can't be satisfied. Yeah, and that and that story that you know the Chess was doing a kind of uh, jump blues or Chicago blues style that was heavily piano based with a lot of saxophones and kind of a mellower vibe than the real Delta blues that Muddy brought. And when Muddy electrified it. Leonard didn't quite know how to handle it, but he did adapt and he did release I Can't Be Satisfied, which has Muddy and his electric guitar and a bassist and was a really radical sound for the time. And then eventually Muddy talked him into bringing in Jimmy Rogers and the whole electric band, Otis Spann on piano and little Walter on harmonica and the whole crew. And I think it's easy to knock Leonard for not being immediately hip to what Muddy was laying down, but... I don't think it's really fair to knock somebody for not quite catching up with Muddy Waters when Muddy Waters hasn't been recorded or released yet. You know, you're seeing it created, and of course it's going to catch you by surprise. That, that, that's certainly true. If I could make a, another point, and sometimes we can understand things by comparison, I think Leonard and So would be the first to tell you that neither of them was Jerry Rexler nor Ahmet Erdogan, the men who created Atlantic music. You know, they were more cosmopolitan. They came to the business from a love of music. Leonard and Phil fell into this. And, and uh, just to add other point, it's jumping ahead a little bit if you want to get there in more detail. You know, you alluded to it. By the time Leonard met Muddy Waters, he knew a different kind of music from where he was with his brother in their business life. And so that, you know, those two things account for it. As you said, he hadn't heard this kind of music before, and he didn't come to the whole enterprise out of a love of music. You know, these were smart, tough, hardworking, striving men, and this was their opportunity. Absolutely. And there's one more bit of myth that I'd like to dispel before we get any further, and that's Keith Richards' infamous story of seeing Muddy Waters painting the chess studios when the Rolling Stones dropped in to record there in 1964. And that has been utterly debunked many, many times by Muddy Waters, Marshall Chess, and so many. That is just not something that would have happened. That that is correct. That, that is correct. I don't know what else to say. If anybody wants to pick up the book, that was one of the end notes I loved driving where I I gave the the observations of everybody who was around the building. But but what is more, um would could the word be disappointing? It's so misperceived the way Leonard felt about muddy waters and I believe vice versa. That wouldn't wouldn't have happened, and so that um, you know, disappointing is about the best word.
Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. But let's get into the Sis brothers' background. They came from a village in Poland. Their father immigrated in the 1920s, and the rest of the family followed him out. And they came to Chicago. Tell us a little bit about their background in Poland and what drove them to the U.S. Yeah, the 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 Czech family, you know, Stiltsiv, came from a small place called Motyla, and it was in that part of the world that sometimes it was part of Poland, sometimes it was part of Russia. Motyla was a, a poor, um, a fairly poor town like so many. There was a sizable population of Jews, many of them um, extended families, cousins and aunts and uncles and brothers-in-law, and, and at the turn of the century, as we know, that was the a, a very large migration of Jews from Eastern Europe into the country for one reason, fleeing anti-Semitism. Um, perhaps some of your listeners have heard the word pogrom, you know, which was a word for, you know, coming in to a village and terrorizing, you know, sort of the Eastern European version of what the Ku Klux Klan was doing uh, in, in the South um, uh, after the Civil War and into the 20th century. In in the Tsis family, it was um, Leonard's great uncle um, who got to this country first, and then when he did well enough, he sent for Leonard and Phil and May's father, who was then known as Yasis Tsis, and by the time he got to Chicago, he became Joe Chess. And uh, once again, the way the pattern worked, when he felt that he was doing well enough with his relatives there, they were uh, trying to build buildings and eventually were going to get into the junk business. Um, he brought his wife, um, um, Cyril, to become Celia, and then Malka, Lazor, and Fizzle, who became May, Leonard, and Phil Chess. The one interesting thing about this is it was 1928, which is actually late. They were at the back end of um, of that heavy stream of um, immigrants. And just a final point, where they settled, um, by this time, the Lawndale section of Chicago was where many of the Jews had settled, recent immigrants. And there were so many from different spots that they would name their synagogues after their hometown. And so, you know, one of the first places the family could worship was on Shemetula, uh, in, in honor, in memory of Matula. And they moved to an area that was adjacent to a black neighborhood, and there's a, a massive yes, the, black the, migration starting yes. at the same time. Yeah, right. The, the, this comes this comes just a little bit later uh, when um, after. Um, um, Leonard has finished school, high school, did not go to college, but Phil did. Joel and his brother-in-law were in the um, junk business. And by 1941, Leonard had married and uh, Marshall was born in 1942. And that's when the, the three of them moved to the south side, as you said, on Drexel Boulevard, uh, which was predominantly white, very large Jewish population in that area. But now Next to a growing uh, black neighborhood. And the other thing, you know, we know this from records now that that is not music records, but documents that we can check like the phone book and, and city directories that the junkyard was now Paul Chess and Sons. But um, um, Leonard wasn't really very happy about that. That is not that is not how he saw his future. One other point about this, and this is key, the location junkyard um, proved to be crucial because it was across the street from a small church with a black, black population. And Phil um, enjoyed when he would hear them, he, he called them the hand clappers and said, I would really like it when they would get in a groove. So, you know, there we have the first inkling that, that they have an appreciation for the community and the music coming out of it. And their business life evolves. They move from the junk shop into alcohol distribution. And from there, the Chess Brothers open up a lounge, the Macomba Lounge. Tell us about that. That, that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Leonard first had a, a liquor store on State Street, and then he moved to a livelier neighborhood um, um, with you know much more street just off South 47th Street. And then he had the opportunity um, to get into a building at 3905 South Cottage Grove. I mean, the, the address would 
or is significant to those who know some Chicago history, you know, in, in, in the heart of, of the black community. And he renamed it the Macomba Lounge. I wish I could tell you, you know, why he chose that name. Um, you know, Phil was away in the army by this time and Marshall was only four years old. And by the time I started working on this winter, you know, sadly was gone, but, but there it was, um, you know, a small neighbor neighborhood club uh, that that was quite popular. It had all the things you you know would accept you know, um, you know volatile moments with you know fights might break out. There were some small time drug deals. The brothers knew they needed to have the police on their side. But there was you know good music, small combos as you pointed out before. I mean, generally a horn player, you know a piano crammed up on the you know little upright on the, the bandstand and a um, and and a drummer and the, the occasional white patron coming in. And let's go ahead and hear uh, the first song that um, the Chess Brothers were involved in, and we'll we'll get to the story of Aristocrat Records in a second. But I want to play Andrew Tibbs' "Bilbo Is Dead." This is the the, the record that got Leonard Chess into music. Well, I've been down to Dallas, Texas. Even went to San Antonio, but when I got to Mississippi, my best friend was dead and gone. Yes, Bilbo is gone. Well, he had to put it down. That was Andrew Tibbs singing "Bilbo Is Dead," which was the B-side of his song Union Man Blues. And tell us how um, Andrew Tibbs sort of triggered a circuitous chain of events that led Leonard Chess into the record business. Yeah, he, Leonard was introduced uh, uh, to Tibbs by somebody who um, came around the club and Leonard liked him right away. Tibbs was actually singing nearby, uh, but, but Leonard said, you know, come on, and sing when you can between sets, which um, which he did, and then Leonard learned that that um, there was interest in somebody out there wanting to record him, and that's when um, he decided that they should try to make a record, even though they they didn't know uh, anything about making records. But here here is where, and this is this is going to be a theme all the way through um, the the life of Chess Records, the importance of of uh, friendship and circumstance and connections and in in this case the, uh, the aspects of the Chicago Jewish community where people socialize together and um, the the folks that Leonard and Phil knew were a couple Evelyn and Charles Aaron they were self-siders and they had around late 46 started a small label called Aristocrat that was basically featuring white musicians and you know the mom and pop nature of it is evidence that the label's actual street address was Charles Aaron's paint shop. And though they started it as a couple, Evelyn was really the prime mover. Uh, she was from old money, as the saying goes. Her grandparents had immigrated Chicago in the 1880s. They were well established in uh, in in the area's Jewish community, and so Evelyn had grown up not only around music but also in comfort. And one of my favorite details that I learned was that at 16 she had her own canary yellow convertible. Um, so um, they did agree to sign Andrew Tibbs, and and Leonard was uh, involved in that. And, for reasons we don't actually know, he, he took a writing credit on the song Union Man Blues, which really didn't have anything to do with the union, but more was about a romance. And then one of the lyrics is, but I don't care because I'm a union man now. And then, as you noted, the B-side, Bilbo is Dead, was a sarcastic take on the death of the Senator Theodore Bilbo from Mississippi, one of the notorious racists of that moment in time, late 30s, early 40s. Yeah, absolutely a revolting figure. And it was controversial for them to put that record out and limited their sales. But Leonard sort of worms his way into aristocrat. He becomes a salesman and then a partner. And in just a few short years, Leonard and Phil buy out uh, Mazera and, and take over the label. That. Yes, that that is uh, that is exactly right. And one of the things that while this is going on, you use an important word there, salesman. Uh, uh, it, it's hard 
um, to overestimate the amount of work it took to sell a record and the time on the road. And, and this was really a retail kind of operation. You, you got the record made, you put them in the trunk and you drove around, you know, maybe to the city or you, you started to have um, routes and different, uh, in different and uh, especially uh, for the kind of music uh, that Leonard and Phil were beginning to get into, that was the South. And they put in the effort and the and the drive time. And and you know, Marshall Chess will tell you that his father was gone a lot because he was out on the road. And and when he did bond with his father, it was frequently on these road trips down south to Memphis and New Orleans. That that that, that is that is very true. Um, that is very true. I guess you know one one important thing that that uh, we don't want to get Evelyn out of aristocrat too early because while we alluded to it before, she was still with aristocrat when somebody brought in this young man from uh, Mississippi um, called uh, Muddy Waters, and uh, she actually was the one uh, the one who understood that this music would have a market and and convince Leonard that they should put out the record. So, you know, we, we have to give her credit there. And there is one interview that Muddy had given um, oh, a very long time ago. He said, I think simply she dug me. But then he said, um, you know, another thing um, that, that I came across once uh, he agreed with what Evelyn wanted to do, that is Leonard and the record was success. And as Muddy put it, then he was my buddy. Chess began to come close to me, which is so true. <laughs> Absolutely. And then on one of those road trips, he makes an acquaintance in Memphis of a man named Sam Phillips, who um, brings him a song. Sam had set up a recording studio and started recording, had yet to think of the idea of starting his own record label. But one of the records that he recorded and sold to the Chess Brothers was Howlin' Wolf's How Many More Years. Let's hear a little bit of Howlin' Wolf. was Helen Wolf's How Many More Years, recorded uh, in Memphis by Sam Phillips, but shipped off and sold by Chess Records. And Howlin' Wolf uh, didn't take very long to move himself up to Chicago and become uh, the second jewel in the crown of their blues artist roster. Right. Yeah, there there's another important piece of the Memphis story. And the reason it's so important is it gets Leonard and Phil from aristocrat to chess. And for that, we have to thank another important Memphian, if I can use that term, to the music business, and that is Buster Williams. Um, he was uh, quite an innovative uh, man, um, created lots of things, um, became quite well-to-do. He was originally a, a key distributor but he also had a pressing plant and he was the one who said to Leonard on one of the trips, you know, you really should change the name of this. Why don't you use your own family name? It's a crisp one syllable word and the artwork possibilities are obvious because of the chessboard game and how right he was. Uh, and it's worth noting that the very first chess records was not actually a blues tune, but rather Gene Ammons uh, on saxophone doing his version of the popular tune at the time, My Foolish Heart. And the other thing that's kind of poignant, the Chess Brothers chose not to give this record number one, but rather 1425. And that was the street address of their first home in Long Island, 1925, 1425 South Carlisle. And, and another record we should mention that Sam Phillips produced and sold to Chess was Jackie Brinson's Rocket 88, which was recorded by Ike Turner and his Kings of Rhythm. Jackie was the saxophone player who sang the track that they legendarily wrote on the drive into the studio. And then Somewhere between Memphis and, and Chicago, it became a Jackie Brinson record and uh, was a massive hit and one of the first really big R&B hits uh, for the Chess record label. And, and it's a little different. And Ed Ward and I you know, have talked on this show that the audience distinction between 
blues, even urban electric blues, and the kind of R&B that Ike Turner was playing was that the urban blues appealed to these migrants and older people and and people that had moved up to the north from the south, whereas the kind of hot R&B that uh, Jackie Brinson was playing on Rock at 88 was more of an urban hip phenomenon mm-hmm. that you might hear yeah. on Central Avenue in L.A. or or the other areas. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, well, pre- precisely the point. As soon as you said L.A., you know, when people talk about Rocket 88, some want to claim it as the first rock and roll. And then there are there are others who say, hey, wait a minute, the sound, the sound was already on the West Coast. That It just made me smile when you said L.A., that that, that is what 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 many say that, you know, there, there was a lot. A lot of stuff going on in the music business around around the same time, and you know what sounds were becoming appealing when and where. Yep, and and all of this momentum and these characters that they're assembling. One of the key characters that comes into the studio around this time is a man named Willie Dixon, who's a bassist and more importantly a songwriter, and he becomes kind of the de facto in-house producer for the Chess Brothers. Yeah, yes, he does. That was again by this time, um, you know, Leonard and Phil realizing what business they were in, wanting to expand in, and realizing that that they needed help. And Leonard actually referred to Dixon as my right arm. Though this is not to say that the two didn't have their disagreements about um, about how the business should run. Um, and you know, just when when you mentioned. Um, Willie Dixon, if if I could embellish a point at um, at this moment, because we have now talked about three important people: Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, and Willie Dixon. And and I think that if you want to get a feel for how Chess Records operated at this moment as it was growing, it is really best understood through Marshall's memory of 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 his getting to know these men and how they were. A around the Chess family's home. While it is a cliche to say that Chess was like a family because it was a business, it was nonetheless a a very human place and these relationships were real. And Marshall delighted, and by this time, you know, when Willie comes uh, uh, to the operation, Marshall is nine, 10 years old, and he delighted in just talking about Willie almost being like an uncle, would drive him around Chicago in his Chevrolet station wagon, and it would tilt leftward because Willie Dixon was a large man and Marshall was just a child. You know, I find that, you know, a delicious story. And, and it, it rings true in terms of understanding what it was like to make music there. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a very human story. And I I was watching the BBC documentary you worked on about chess records uh, a while back last night, and they really get across how much this alliance of white but Jewish businessmen and African-American performers was just magical for the time because the Chess Brothers could travel through the South with the privilege of being white, but they had the understanding of what it was like to be an oppressed minority. And and it really, I don't know, it's just an inspiring American story to me. And, and it shows that it was not just an extraction of value from these performers. It was a collaboration. I, I I agree. I, I also think it's always important to remember that that you know there there were power imbalances, but that doesn't make it evil, and it doesn't make it always exploitive. You know, I have always thought to myself that that these record owners, you know, and we can just talk about chess right now, they were the ones who had to create the structure for you, the musician, to get your music out. So this isn't this isn't a case of, of appropriation. The record company became the vehicle for you to be able to get your music out to the world. And and also the studio became the vehicle for you to create your music and document your music in a permanent way that could be distributed around the world and could last, which this music definitely has. And then there's a, another transition that happens around this time. But first, let's have a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. And we're back. And so around this time, Chess has become a magnet for talent, and a young man from St. Louis who's 
Ben Ike Turner's big rival in the, the St. Louis club scene comes to Chicago looking for a record deal, gets a hold of Muddy Waters, and Muddy Waters sends him to chess. And I'm referring, of course, to the great Chuck Berry, who had a song he called Ida Red that he was a country western song that Bob Wills had done a popular version of that he thought he would record. And Leonard had a suggestion how to change that when Chuck came into the studio. Yeah, yeah, he did. And, you know, one of the stories may be apocryphal that some makeup was sitting there and he said, you know, why not call it Maybelline? You know, same um, same sound, Ida Red, Maybelline, you know, the, the, the sounds line up and uh, and that he did. And, and you know, what what is, uh, I think, important about this moment um, is uh, the notion of, of instinct and adaptability. And one of the things that stuck in my mind uh, is something that Phil said, you know, recalling this time and trying, you know, these men, again, who were not initially inherently music men, know, as he put it, the beat has got to move. And so when when Chuck Berry came in, um, it you know they now had the ability to sense what might be the next thing or or be ready to accept it. And this was definitely the next thing. And let's hear a song from Chuck Berry. This is the B side to Maybelline. Chuck Berry's Thirty Days. I'm give you Thirty Days to get back home. I done call up a gypsy woman on a telephone. Tonight a worldwide hoodoo That'll be the very thing that'll suit you I'm gonna see that you'll be back home In 30 days Oh, 30 days Oh, 30 days Baby, I'm gonna see that you'll be back home In 30 days Where well, she gonna send out a worldwide hoodoo That'll be the very thing that'll suit you I'm gonna see that you'll be back home And that was Chuck Berry's 30 Days The B-Side to Maybelline And this was a as much as they'd had R&B hits even rocket 88 was big but it didn't hit the pop charts chuck berry is the artist that broke chess through to the young white audience that was now hungering for this r&b and rock and roll music and this is a big big record that that it is and um, you know one one delicious story that phil was on a trip up in northern wisconsin and and he turned on the radio station and and there was maybelline he turned on another station and and there it was and and you know some of the story behind maybelline you know we can learn more about the business um from this song beyond the music a prime mover um, for Maybelline's success was the disc jockey in New York, uh, Alan Freed. He had been in Ohio, but had moved to WINS in New York. Um, Leonard and Phil had cultivated a relationship with him. And Leonard um, um, personally um, took him the record to play. And um, and he did so. And that, that surely helped it a great deal. The other thing about Maybelline is when you look at the original copyright and you see the writing credits, there are three names on it. Chuck Barry, Alan Freed, and Russ Fratto, who was um, the Chess Brothers' friend and um, and also their landlord. Um, Chuck uh, always insisted that he didn't know that two-thirds of his writing credits were given away. None of us was there at the time, but the fact remains that that's the way the copyright um was filed. What this meant is that a third of the proceeds from, you know, the the writing credits were going to go to Alan Freed, and and a third were going to go to Russ Fratto. Uh, you know, back in the day, the record companies would tell you that you know you had to have relationships with disc jockeys, and this was just the way that that thing done. I, I will say in in this um, instance, when the original copyright on Maybelline expired, Chuck Berry got uh, the full rights back. But you know, it tells us it tells us a story, and and the adding names that seem unusual to um, songwriting is not unique to Maybelline, uh, and that you know just gives us an insight into the tenor of the times back then, and gets gets back to the notion of 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 the the power relationships. 
Absolutely. And the Chess Brothers had formed a publishing company around this time uh, uh, in partnership with some pretty well-known guys. Um, yes, yeah. The Goodman Brothers, Benny Goodman's yeah. Brothers, yeah. And, uh, and, and they, they, so they were profiting on both sides. And, and similarly to the legal restitution that Chuck Berry got on the songwriting credits, eventually uh, he and uh, Muddy Waters and several others would sue the production company long after Leonard had sold it. And so, yeah, again, the power, there was a power imbalance and there were some decisions made that at least some of the performers uh, disagreed with. But, you know, I think compared to so many of their peers in the independent record man business, they were far less exploitative than their peers. Yeah. One, one, one of the difficult things here, and, and, and I mentioned this in the book, um, it, it, and we, we, we learned a couple of things. It would have been great if there would have been more documents. And, and, but the other thing is these, these were small businesses with a lot of hard work and, and um, not the most formal kind of bookkeepings and file drawers with copies of contracts. And so it would have been great if, if we could have seen documentation. Okay. What were, what were the, the sales numbers and what, you know, what kind of deal did you make? Were you getting a penny a record? Was it supposed to be two pennies? for a record and and we simply we simply don't know the the other thing i think we have to remember and i know we're we're focusing on the chess side but some of the jazz you know the argo jazz side especially with Amit Jamal and later Ramsey Lewis those folks sold more records if you're going to look at it that way than what people think of as, as the heart of chess this doesn't in any way diminish the importance of to our culture, but just in the in the business sense, it's always more complicated than it appears to be. Yeah, absolutely. And the and the Chuck Berry wasn't the only rock and roller they brought in. I'm glad you brought up the jazz guys, though, and I want to get to that because chess was a much bigger label. It's easy to think of je- of chess as the blues record label, especially after the Rolling Stones and other English bands come in and really worship it as the blues record label and popularize it. But they were a well-rounded label that did blues, R&B, soul, and comedy, right. and jazz. Well, I, yeah. Yeah, again, I think it has to do with with the notion of, of, of striving to be successful. These were businessmen who fell into the music business, not musicians who figured out how to have a business. You know, I, I think that's a fair distinction to make, if you follow me there. Absolutely, absolutely. And I want to mention a few of the other and, rock and roll uh, that came. Oh, go ahead if you had another point to add. Yeah, I, I was only to say, like with bringing Willie Dixon in, and when we get to a later chapter, they got smart enough to know what they didn't know, and they needed to bring in engineers. They needed to have somebody build that studio at 2120 Michigan Avenue. I mean, they didn't know, you know, what's a soundboard? How do we have an echo chamber? So it's always important to know what you don't know and bring in people who can help you make it happen. Absolutely. And, and and one of the people that they brought in and made happen was Bo Diddley, who uh, has a not quite as successful as Chuck Berry, but carves out a very unique role and, and has some pop hits, plays on Ed Sullivan, and is just an absolutely unique character in American music. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And, you know, his memories later in life of, of chess are different from his, from how he talked about it as it was happening. But he does have credit for, um, you know, people do talk about the bow that they hit, you know, shave and haircut two bits. And that I always thought he played the guitar as though it were a percussion instrument. Yeah, absolutely, and had those giant, giant hands and the and the crazy yes, homemade did. guitars that he had built. Right, but and the hat. Don't yes. forget the hat. And and, and his uh, maraca player Jerome and his rhythm guitarist the Duchess. It was a, a singular package and some great American rock and roll. And then another important group that came in that is probably a little undersung, but they had a they made their mark in doo wop as well with a group called the Moon Glows and a guy named Harvey Fuqua yes. who would go on to be a yep. big songwriter for Motown. Yes, that that that's right. They they ended up 
um, coming and had um, a nice hit with uh, Sincerely built around him and also Bobby Lester, uh, who was a tenor. They, they were boyhood friends from Louisville. And, and you know, that song Sincerely is an example of, of a certain kind of entrepreneurship. You know, we, we talked about all the traveling, but by this time, you know, Leonard and Phil could fly if they needed to do uh, business. And uh, Phil happened to be on a plane with the McGuire sisters, and he gave them a copy of The Moon Glows Sincerely, which they liked, and they made their own record, which became a great big hit. And, and so good for them. But there was not much concern about what this might have done to the Moon Glow sale. So you, you could say that that was a double-edged move. Yeah, but they profited on the back end on the songwriting royalties. So hopefully it evened out uh, for yeah. Harvey, Harvey and the crew. And this, I think, speaks to the sort of a transition that they made, that the, they could see that the blues artists were fading a little bit. And Chuck Berry obviously had his legal troubles with the Mann Act and, and did some prison time. And the, and the Chess Brothers really fought to keep Chuck out of prison, but they couldn't couldn't beat the system. And Chuck went away, you know, just part of the sort of annihilation of the first wave of rock artists, whether it was plane crashes or car wrecks or being drafted yeah, yeah. or going to prison, you know, or marrying your cousin like Charlie Lewis, all of those guys seemed to, to flame out tragically really quickly. And, and chess evolved and they evolved in two ways. One was by repackaging their blues artists as album artists aimed at the folk market. So you had things like, you know, Muddy Waters at Newport, Newport or the Real Folk Blues series of albums they did. And the second thing they did was bring in a guy named Billy Davis, who had been a songwriting partner of Barry Gordy on a series of hits for Jackie Wilson, brought in Billy yeah. Davis and became a soul label. And tell us about that. Yeah. Um, uh Right when when Billy came from from Detroit, it was interesting. He you know he is someone who who had enough stature and was of enough interest to Leonard that that he did something few could do is that that he got a nice compromise from Leonard. He said he wanted his own publishing company, and Leonard said, well, how about if we if we share one? And so indeed they did create Chevis uh, Chevis Records, um, which was. Uh, a combination of, of the, the chess name and Billy Davis's name. And the Billy wanted to bring, uh, for lack of a better word, a sense of, of professionalism to the operation and told Leonard that, you know, he really should have a house band. He wanted a stable group of musicians who would be, um, who would be exclusive to chess. He knew he could count on them. And it took a little bit uh, convincing, but Leonard said, okay. And then he said, you know, he wanted a time clock. And the, the house band at that time included Maurice White on drums, Gerald Sims on guitar, and Lewis Satterfield on bass. And they were alternately amused and, and, and horrified. And, and one of them said, you know, Leonard, we, we can't do that. We're creative people. We can't work on the clock, man. And, and Leonard <laughs> relented. <laughs> Absolutely. And Maurice White, of course, goes on to found Earth, Wind, and Fire. And, and the right. But the importance of this apprenticeship he served under Billy Davis at Chess Studios cannot be uh, overstated. And let's hear a record by the really the first great soul artist that, that came to Chess Records. And this was a young woman named Etta James, who'd started out very young and working with John, Johnny Otis on the West Coast and had uh, an early hit with Work With Me Henry. But she'd been slumping, and she comes to Chess, and uh, here's Etta James singing, At Last. James doing at last, which is arranged by Riley Hampton. Tell us a little bit about Etta James and Leonard's relationship with her. Yeah, uh, I can do that first. Just because you mentioned Riley Hampton, uh, one of the things I was so pleased about, I was able find Riley Hampton because that is such a beautiful arrangement that he wrote for Etta James. And and just jumping ahead, you know, we 
those of us who have watched TV over the years have heard, you know, a sampling of, of that version in one commercial letter and one of them, I believe, was for a Jaguar. And I think that record was so successful for Etta James that she could have bought two or three Jaguars, you know, just from, uh, just from that beautiful, um, that beautiful version. Um, yeah, this was... Um, it, this was a special, a special relationship. Um, um, Leonard, you know, you, you, you could say it was paternalistic in the way he tried to take care of um, musicians. And if they came asking for something, he would give them, you know, just what he thought they needed, because if he gave them more, it, it would be gone. But the, the best story with, with Etta James is that, you know, he knew that she had had struggles in, in her life, that she was in California. California and and she had a house and and he wanted to make sure that she would always have some place um, some place to live and and after Leonard was gone somebody showed up at her house and presented her with a document that showed her that the house was in her name and um, I had thanks to Marshall I had the opportunity to speak to Etta James for the book and when I picked up the phone and she said hello this is Etta James and that was really you know a special moment and and she said something like do you know about my house do you know about my house and she wanted to tell me about Leonard making sure that she had her home uh, and and I think you know Etta Etta James is um, is a musician that that Chess tried um, to do to do a lot with put her in good settings with with different kinds of musicians and different kinds of mu- um, music to great effect. I mean, she is, I think, their their biggest female star. Served her well in her later life after there was no more chess. Absolutely, and I think she's one of the few soul artists of her era who was well served by doing the sort of uh, Great American Songbook Broadway show tune type thing that, you know, Barry Gordy was always trying to force the Supremes and others on Motown to do. And it never really clicked for them, in my opinion. But Feretta James, I think she, maybe because she was a little bit older and more experienced, pulled that kind of thing off and really developed a broad range of material that she mastered. And and it was always Etta, though, was it not? You know, she could sing my funny Valentine, but it was the way Etta James was going to do it. Absolutely. And, and watching the documentary yeah. last night, it really brought home the way Leonard Chess uh, could manipulate her emotions in the studio and, and was willing to pick little fights and do things that, that brought out the angst and, and her emotion and get those killer performances out of her. Yeah, you know, one 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 other thing about about Etta James, and it involves another producer who came in, and Ralph Bass. In my view, one of the great live albums made is called Etta Rocks the House at the New Era Club in Nashville, Tennessee, and and the way it opens at start time, and you hear these chords, and then this impromptu, uh, almost guttural beginning to something's got a hold on me. As I say, it's one of the, and and they left all the audience reaction on the album. I, again, you feel like you're right there. Yeah, it's a, a brilliant album and one that I only learned about from reading your book. So thank you for sharing that tip. And around this time, though, Leonard diversifies his business interests and he gets into radio. Tell us a little bit about WVON. Yes, uh, WVON, those letters are important. It stands for Voice of the Negro. And it was in 1962 that he bought a Chicago AM station um, that was WHFC. It also had an even smaller FM station. Leonard changed HFC to VON, um, the Voice of the Negro, and, and determined, you know, that with the sizable black population, he thought there was room for a radio station that was devoted exclusively to them. Not that other stations didn't have segments devoted to Black Chicago, but there would be the Polish hour, the Italian hour, you know, because Chicago had so many ethnic groups. Um, it is very true that the owners of the station, Leonard and Phil, who created LNP Broadcasting, and the general manager were white men, but all the disc jockeys and all the on-air personnel 
now, and the people doing the programming were black Chicagoans, uh, and they not only um, played music and an interesting one of the one of the deals for the FCC approval of the Chess Brothers being able to get the station was that no more than ten percent of any playlist would be chess music, and um, that you know, provoked a chuckle from um, Leonard because I've never gotten that much airplay ever. You know, anybody would be happy with a much smaller percentage of that. Um, the one that one of the key um, elements of of VON and its best year was the evening talk show that was hosted by um, Wesley South. And as an example, Medgar Evers, the important civil rights leader in Mississippi was on Wesley's program just a few days before he was shot um, to death outside his home in Jackson and jumping ahead a few years when WVON was really and it's in its good years its significance uh, came to the fore after Martin Luther King was assassinated the station immediately started to play excerpts from his speeches about nonviolence and the DJs regularly suggested that a peaceful way to honor King was to drive with their headlights they switched the programming to gospel and spiritual and and inspirational music all of it, of course, an, an effort to to offer some solace to a community in pain and 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 hoping to calm um, what what turned into a tough moment for all of us in 1968. Absolutely, and I think you really do a good job in the book of explaining how vital WVON was to the Chicago community. It, it's sort of like a radio analog to the Chicago Defender, the famous African-American newspaper that was a, sort of a national paper of record for the African-American community. But let's get back to the music. And, and there's one other soul singer that we've just got to talk about and, and one record that is one of the biggest records Chess ever did. I'm talking about Fontella Bass and Rescue Me. And let's yeah. hear that and, we'll, and then we'll talk about it. Montella Bass doing Rescue Me, and that's Maurice White and Company in full effect, uh, Maurice on the drums. And that's just an immense record. For years growing up, I thought that was Aretha Franklin. You, you heard it on TV, yeah. and, you know, commercials and massive pop hit, massive radio. Tell us a little bit about Fontana and, and Rescue Me. Yeah, um, um, Fontana. Bass was part of what what I kind of considered the the you know continuing St. Louis infusion um, on chess. Although Little Milton was originally from Mississippi, he um, um, was in St. Louis. He had a nice um, uh, a record on chess. We're we're going to make it. And and um, Oliver Sane, um, a songwriter, played the saxophone and and the piano. Wrote a um, wrote a great song, "Walk Away," that Ann Peebles first recorded. And uh, white singer Tracy Nelson done a wonderful version. Biddy Collier did it. And 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 Fontella Bass. Um, uh, was from there as well. The interesting thing about about me was its its evolution. It was was written by Carl Smith and and Renard Meyer. Um, most of the time, Billy Davis was producing, and most of the time he would he would be you know in in the control room. But he decided for for this one he would stay in in the studio and watch the song evolve. And as he remembered it, it it was it was his decision as the song was winding down and you know its principal theme is we just heard rescue me take me in your arms rescue me i want your tender charm but he wanted the instruments to drop off one by one and he walked around tapping them on the shoulder you stop now you stop now until at the very end all that was left was um, the the final vocal and and as as he recalled and some of the other musicians everybody was quiet when it was all over and then they realized we've got a hit 
Yeah, yeah that one was yeah definitely that was obvious and that's a great story um and and so uh, as we wrap up i want to i want to cover the sort of end era of chess records and and it's easy to focus on the blues and rock and roll era and even the soul and think that they had sputtered out but they they hadn't they they were clicking and and you had artists like the dells and and you know even pigmeat markham the comedian who goes on to become a huge influence on hip hop uh, in the future, uh, and Marshall Chess and working with a guy named Charles Stepney is doing some really interesting yeah. things and some commercially successful things, like with the Rotary Connection. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. Yeah, um, you know Marshall had always wanted to be a record man and had assumed that he was going to be running Chess Records one day. And he's a younger man; he had his his own ideas, and he was just so interested in the the possibility of you know, getting some of the, these big classical music sounds together in, um, um, you know, in, in a pop setting. And, and that was Rotary Connection. He also had, you know, an, um, another idea that the critics savaged, uh, but the public like, and that was um, redoing Muddy Water songs, but, but really, really amped up in an album called Electric Mud, which again, as I say, people wrote, the critics wrote so harshly about it and, and Muddy was known to have said, you know, I really don't like that Wawa thing, but it was a big seller. But another idea, again, Marshall, a younger man and knowing his generation of musicians, had a successful record with the critics and the public called Fathers and Sons to to bring Muddy in and have him play with with his, uh, can we call him, um, his descendants, you know, young blues musicians who, who um, you know, relished the chance to play with him then and um that turned out to be a successful album but um you know that that was only one piece of the operation that was still run by leonard and phil who um as marshall put it leonard could see that by this time and we're now 1968 it's getting harder and harder to be the white owners of a record label that had primarily almost exclusively black talent and a market of, of the black community in the United States. And that maybe it was time to think about letting the record business go so they could focus on the radio stations. And Leonard wanted to move into television as well. So that, that was the beginning of the end. And they, and they sell it to a company called GRT and kind of sold yes, it out from General, under Marshall. Um, tell us about GRT. Yes, yeah, GRT, General Record and Tape, is the name sounds like a, it is a company that that made tapes but wanted to be able to have its own music. And so they they worked out a deal. And, you know, amusingly, as the lawyers involved, the chess lawyers involved, they never had a deal that, that took so long because this is a business-based, you know, kind of understanding and handshakes and, you know, a little bit of paperwork. I mean, obviously with the radio station, the FCC, but the GRT thing went back and forth and forth and back. And they finally worked out an agreement. And Marshall was on a business trip. And he, he got a call from his father you know, I've sold the company. And Marshall was just, you know, stunned. This didn't see this coming. And his father said, when you come back, you know, you'll talk to me. And he told Marshall, you're going to get a million dollars and you can start your own label. And and as Marshall said, you know, pacify me. That that was his word that okay, he would take a deep breath. Uh, but but it really it really was not to be um, you know, GRT um one way to put it was they didn't really know what it was what they were doing and and Marshall you know summed it up so well they bought a family company that was making black music and tried to turn it into a suits tie corporation and um, the the other thing that that harmed the transition is that Leonard had a heart attack and died October sixteenth, nineteen sixty nine. Um, he was only 52 years old so if he was going to be a consultant all of a sudden he was just gone from the premises and it's sort of shocking you know when i was younger and read about somebody dying at 52 it seemed like they were pretty middle-aged now that i'm 51 that seems pretty shockingly young <laughs> and 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 yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and men in that era lived harder lives. They drank, you know, hard liquor and they smoked like chimneys and Leonard was no yeah. exception. And Yeah, and, yeah, uh, I, I, yeah. I, I think more the smoking than I think the hard drinking, but, but you're right. And just working hard, working hard. And, you know, this was not easy. This was not sitting in a beautiful suite with your feet up on the phone, uh, on, on the desk, you know, on the phone all the time. Yeah, this was a business where he literally had shotguns put in his belly by southern landowners when he was trying to recruit a bluesman or, you know, uh, many, many a rough experience, whether it's a fist fight at the McCumbell Lounge or, or uh, you know, shouting obscenities back and forth with Sonny Boy Williamson. He definitely worked really hard, but put together an incredible legacy. And, and Nadine, I want to thank you for coming on the show. The book is Spinning Blues into Gold, The Chess Brothers and the Legendary Chess Records. The guest is Nadine Cahotis. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And hopefully we can have you back on and talk about Nina Simone and Dinah Washington sometime. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate will be back next week with Joe Nick Potoski to talk about his book, Austin to ATX, The Hippies, Pickers, Slackers, and Geeks Who Transformed the Capital of Texas. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Spinning Blues into Gold, The Chess Brothers and the Legendary Chess Records is published by Villard. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.